Welcome to the Word and Journey podcast, conversations with friends about stories that shape us and make us think, and some stories that are just for fun. We're busy people reading books in realistic increments. Follow along in the book and join in the conversation, or just sit back and enjoy. Our aim is to unpack the story and offer you things to ponder. Either way, thanks for being here. Welcome back to the Word and Journey podcast. My name is Moses Barnabé. I'm here with Nix. And we are introducing you to stories that shape us and make us think. We're having conversations about them. And it's late. And I'm mixing up my tagline. And I haven't even had anything to drink except lots of tea. So anyway, I'm glad you're here talking about stories with me. Honored to be here as always. Yes. And happy leave taking a Father's Day. Uh, whenever y'all the listener actually listen to this, we just had Father's Day. And it was, it was nice. only two days ago. So happy Father's Day, late Father's Day to all those dads out there listening. I'm lifting my mug of tea to you. And I'm and I got a Kirkland lime sparkling water in your honor, too. OK, well, thank you. All right. The passage part four. Here we are. These are sort of arbitrary parts that justin developed that's me by the way i'm justin i'm on here too sometimes he calls me nicks n-i-c-s which is a good nickname and i very much appreciate but interchangeably justin or nicks that's me just want to make it clear to the listener right clarity clarity we like clarity okay chapter 19 opens with this line on a fading summer evening late in the last hours of his old life Peter Jackson, son of Demetrius and Prudence Jackson, first family, descendant of Terence Jackson, signatory of the One Law, great-great-nephew of the one known as Auntie, last of the first, Peter of Souls, the man of days, and the one who stood, took his position on the catwalk above Main Gate, waiting to kill his brother. Ha 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 ha. I will attempt a narration and you can correct me. We are now in spoiler territory, if anyone has not read the book but is listening to the podcast, we are absolutely spoiling it because we're talking about the plot and all the twists and we're letting you know what happened. Everything. So if that's not your jam, then turn us off. But I hope you don't turn us off too long because I like you and I hope you like us too. Anyway, so we are picking up here. Last we saw, every character we've known has died, except for Amy. Uh, she does come back. Uh, and so this is an interesting feature of this story where... And I kind of made a reference to the Cloud Atlas and the way that that one was set up. But it feels like several different novels all in the same story universe. I know it's, it's this interesting writing, writing technique where we jumped ahead 92 years. All of Earth civilization is gone. Everybody, all the characters we knew before are gone. Pretty, pretty much everything is gone and different. And except the virals and except Amy and we um, don't meet her until the very end of this section. So we are being introduced to all new characters and it's a, it has a kind of like this sequel feel to it, which is really interesting. Personally, I liked the characters and I found this world interesting and uh, compelling, uh, but I'll let to say, so here we meet 21 year old Peter Jackson, who is full watch. So we find that in this era of time, there's this one little colony of survivors that came from the children on the train that we met last section. And they have grown up into a, a full colony with their own culture, their own legal code, their own interpersonal drama. And we're several generations into it. So this is all they know. So so we meet uh, Peter and his older brother, Theo. They are on the watch. They're the, the guardians, the patrols. Uh, we meet um, a girl named... Alicia Donadio, Donadio, yes, who is also on the watch. She's very skilled, extremely skilled at what she does. Mm-hmm. We meet uh, Sarah Fisher, who is um, kind of a nurse caretaker figure, and Michael Fisher, her brother, who works with the batteries. So, feature of this world. Uh, world-building detail, uh, because the virals, uh, this deadly enemy that's out there everywhere, are sensitive to light. Uh, the city's safe during the day, and during the nighttime, they have lights that are on all the time, and they are run by batteries, batteries that originated in the time before, and that's how they refer to everything before the virals. And Michael Fisher is one of the main ones who 
tends to that. If I'm remembering right, because I'm doing this by memory, we meet Peter when he's standing on the watch, standing on the wall, waiting for his brother to come home. And then this section becomes a flashback section to the last 12 days or so. Mm-hmm. Peter and Theo and Alicia went out on a scouting patrol to, uh, and they're, they're, they're somewhere in Southern California. So they're headed for like the Empire Mall near 29 Palms to retrieve a motherboard uh, and some other supplies and to check on uh, a generating station. Peter's reflecting on the death of his mother, the death of his father. Uh, he's reflecting on his relationship to Alicia. Peter kind of likes Alicia. Alicia kind of likes him. Meanwhile, we're checking back in with Sarah Fisher. She kind of likes Peter. Uh, he doesn't really reciprocate. Uh, Theo also likes Alicia, but or actually, no, he liked somebody else, but Mouse. she married Mouse. Mouse. And uh, she married somebody else. Uh, so and now she's having a kid with somebody else. Anyway. So while they're out there, um, there's just some interpersonal drama woven in. They make it to the station. They discover the station keeper, an older fellow named Xander, and a younger kid named Caleb. They're supposed to be there. They're out. They're missing. What happened? Peter and Alicia, well, Alicia shows Peter the stash of rifles, really nice rifles, military rifles that are there. Uh, she takes him up on top of this tower. It's probably a cool scene to visualize. They're up on the top of this ancient radio tower at night, watching for everything. It's a cool view. And then suddenly they see Caleb bolting across the field. He's been out in the wilderness for three days. Uh, Xander has been turned. He and some other virals are chasing him. So there's some adventure. Peter and Alicia shoot a bunch of bullets and help Caleb escape. And then they're all in all in the little, little fortress together. It comes out that Theo also knew about the guns that are that nobody's supposed to know about because their dad was the one who found them and didn't tell them. Well, he didn't tell Peter, but he told Theo. And so then there's this debate about like, well, what do we do with the guns? And there's this observation that, well, if you give a bunch of hands to a bunch of untrained, scared people, they're going to sh- use up all the bullets really fast one way or another. And it's probably not going to be good. So that's that. Peter has to kill Xander in the process. And there's this glimmer where it's very clear that Xander has been turned by the virals, bitten or however that happens. But there's this glimmer where Peter thinks there's still a human in there. That's kind of letting me kill him. He thought we saw a hint of recognition in Xander. A hint of recognition. Yeah. Which the common understanding of the, of the virals is that they are no longer human. Soulless. Soulless. And Peter is, having some wonderings if that's actually as true as they think it is. So that's an interesting point. And then from there, they start journeying home. They split up and Peter, Theo, and Alicia take a detour into, I guess it's in Caleb, into the the Empire Empire Mall. I'm an Oregonian. I don't know my Southern California geography, but I imagine it's a famous mall. It sounds big. And they're looking for supplies. They encounter band of the the virals there they accidentally wake them up oh but first they find the library with these mounds of books and then they find a whole bunch of dead children that were like infantilized or that's not quite the right word um they were they were they were killed on purpose before the virals could get to them and it's spooky and they're all spooked and then they accidentally wake up some virals and then there's a chase scene and then that is where theo is taken by the virals and he's from there presumed dead and so later um when peter's on the wall the deal is is that if one of their people is known to have been bitten or taken they're given basically like a week to come back and for some reason mysteriously the virals always do come back home for a little bit but they're turned so they have to be shot so that's unfortunate uh so that's what peter's doing but before that um peter gets separated from uh alicia and caleb and while he is there he suddenly encounters this girl this walker who's never seen and doesn't know who she is and she doesn't uh the way that it is written because it's written in italics gives the impression that she's speaking telepathically to him Uh, so it seems like it yeah uh but she takes him under into this secret compartment under a carousel hides him from the virals and then she helps him escape and then but doesn't escape herself and so he escapes and then she's back in there and then the last chapter of this section is uh, this girl's inner monologue, inner dialogue. As she's remembering, it's, it's an interesting piece of exposition because it's her remembering like the last 90 years 
which for her have been like just like this blur, this timeless blur, like not not a lot of relationships, no major markers. It seems like she's grown physically some. Well, Peter thought she looked maybe 13, maybe 16. He couldn't quite tell, 16. but she was yeah. like six when we saw her last. So right. So it's a 10 year like development, but in 92 right. years. Right. Yes. But not quite. So, so she's going a little bit. So it's not, so it's not quite the Kirsten Dunst vampire character from interview with a vampire where she was, um, this eventually this like full grown kind of seductive sort of woman in a seven year old body, like the whole movie. So, oh. Some, that bit, that that movie, I, I love that movie. Anyway, so that's that's the section, and so we find out that this is indeed Amy, the girl from nowhere, who's about to become the girl from nowhere because that's the title of the next section that we haven't read yet. It's her recounting her memories and then coming to the inner resolution that she's ready to come out of hiding and look for people again. So, I got to say that was a terrific reintroduction to Amy when she showed up. I was like, yes. Oh my gosh, because they're in this rush to get away from the virals. They just, you know, you don't expect it at all. They're trying to hide, you know, wherever in the mall and, and, and arm themselves or, you know, prepare to, to fight off the virals and guns they have. And all of a sudden, you know, they get split up. He's running his butt off. He's trying to escape him. All of a sudden, boom, there she is. Like, I just thought that was genius to put it right here. It was good. I'm envisioning the soundtrack for something like that. It's just like this like frantic, frantic, frantic music. And then something like kind of like Hans Zimmery ethere ethereal and like, oh, who's this girl? <sighs> okay, bang, 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 bang. <laughs> so, totally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fun. No, I thought that was that was that was well put. And uh I guess I would only add that we also met um the twins, Arlo and Hollis. We get to know Arlo a little bit better, um, because he's the one that goes with the uh, the crew to the station. And then we also met, um, uh, yeah, well, Mao's Mary, Mary Galen. But there seemed to be some sort of intimation that there was something with Theo and Mao's. And Michael Fisher kind of picked up on some stuff, but he wasn't really mm -hmm. going to get into it with him. But um, yeah. there was there's a lot in this section that that uh, I really appreciated. Mm -hmm. Character wise. Oh, speaking of Michael Fisher, other plot detail. So again, so raising the stakes. So there's this, this, there's this little colony of people. And some decades ago, they had decided it's not safe to have radio. So they haven't radio contacted anybody for, for decades. And now what Michael is carrying around is this knowledge that uh, their batteries are going to die within the year. And when that happens, the lights will go out. And the thought is, as soon as the lights go out that night, the viral, the virals, the jumps, the smokes are going to come and kill them all. So Michael knows this, Theo knows this, and they're Elton. all, and yes, the Elton, the, the blind battery operator, he, he knows this. And so they're all, they're all now living with the uh, certainty that they're, they're all going to, going to die in a year. Uh, so they're looking at the end of the end of their civilization, they think. And mm -hmm. Presumably, well, I don't know because uh, that's the section I haven't read yet. I'm, I'm assuming some sort of plot twist happens, but I guess we'll see. We anyway, will see. We will see. Yes. I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about how different this section is in feel because you mentioned at the at the beginning that it feels a little bit more like um, almost like a sequel within the same same book world, right? Uh, he's built this from the first one and nobody from that one other than Amy has, has survived this second section part or second, uh, I guess it's section four, but you know what I mean? Uh, this mm -hmm. next piece in the, in the journey. And I just noticed that not only, I feel like everything has slowed down, but not in a bad way. I, I, it seems that there's something to be said about a writer who can write with a fast pace in plot and a fast pace in character development. And the, I feel like the first three sections were very much fast paced for both characters and plot. And, and, and he had to get to that end, the end of that, that, you know, first chunk in order for him to get to this part where now I really feel like he's opening things up like crazy. Still a lot is happening. They, he covers a lot of ground, but I feel like he goes in deeper and more methodically and more purposefully into each character not, not only their intentions so that we can get to know why do they just do that thing, but also their backstory and how do they get to this point? Who are mm -hmm. they? Who are they connected to? What are their, I don't know, even interests and, and yeah. preferences, you know? 
I really feel like that's a key thing. Yeah, I'm having I'm having some mixed feelings with with, with the writing style because there I, I as as a writer who has attempted and is attempting currently some pretty ambitious some pretty ambitious plots with some pretty grand scopes. I can appreciate the challenge of that, having to introduce a lot of variables quickly and get the reader to care about them. That's hard to do. It's it's hard to do and still come off sounding really pretty. So what Cronin's doing is, yeah, he's kind of got like, I know that this mini saga condensed into one one book of here's here's like a complete story arc, you know, tragic story arc up until like the the, vir- the virals come out. And then here's this other, what I'm guessing will be like a complete story arc that's all new. And so, so there is a lot of interest. There is a lot, like the world is interesting. The characters are interesting. They're doing interesting things. The way it's written, it's, it's a lot of exposition and it's a lot of info dumpy exposition. Cause he's like, when, like when he introduces Peter, like it's very much the narrator's talking about Peter. Like when he introduces Sarah, he, it's a lot of the narrator's talking about Sarah. Uh, uh, and then and that's kind of the, the style there. And and I, I can get where that may be like a function of utility where he has, I don't know, like 100 pages to restart his story within his story, essentially, uh, which, which is tricky. But it but it does, I don't know. The And I, and I don't know that I could necessarily do that better at this point, or I'm not necessarily sure like how that would be different while still maintaining the, the ensemble cast feel to it. Um, but it is, mm-hmm. uh, it's, I don't know. It's, it is one of those things where I, I think if I wrote this, like my, my, my beta readers would, would critique me for this because they'd be like, Oh, it's really info dumpy. And there's not a, like a whole lot of sensory detail. And like, I really kind of don't know what these characters look like. I mean, Peter, Peter has a man bun. And one of them has dark hair. Amy has dark hair, I think. Well, she, Alicia has the the bright red, you know, strawberry blonde hair. Yeah, but or, it's a uh, red, red red blonde, whatever that's called. Red yeah, blonde. something like that. Yeah, but it's uh, you know compared to I know compared to like Tolkien, who when he creates the world, there's so much rich detail, uh, or uh, or Cormac McCarthy super wordsmithy, or. Well, it says that Peter is tall, though he didn't think himself as tall, with a narrow, high-browed face and strong teeth and skin the color of late honey. Uh, he had his mother's eyes, green with flecks of gold. And his hair was coarse and dark, pulled away from his brow in the style of the watch, compressed into a tight, nut-like knob at the base of his skull with a single leather loop. Okay, so that's a good picture. I still feel like it's a, kind of like an info-dumpy sort of style, uh, which makes up for itself. By at least the the info being dumped is is quite interesting and kind of interesting. And what he what he has done is he's managed to introduce what the stakes are pretty well. There's this only last bastion of humanity. They're about to die. They're and even if they don't die, they have like a lot of interpersonal conflicts going on anyway. So you know, so I mean, it's it, it's easy to read. It's easy to read fast and. Um, and it has it has gotten me wondering. Okay, what happens next? Who's going to die? It's, it's uh, sort of got, got me thinking in terms of like, okay, who's going to die next? <laughs> <laughs> well, I just wonder if if we're talking about world building, he almost has to build. I don't want to say a whole new world, but it almost, almost is a, a new world. You know, he has to he has to get oh, us into much. this this uh, colony, and how 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 do we want him to do this outside of exposition? Like they're already like immersed in this culture and they have been their entire lives, the people we're talking mm-hmm. about. So dialogue wouldn't cut it. You know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't get too, too, uh, you know, full of a picture with just the dialogue. So I'm just wondering how he would set the stage without the extra exposition exposition. Mm-hmm. Probably by slowing it down a little bit, uh, even, even for just like a, a moment or two. Uh, and granted there are, there are some, some moments and there are some, some, some of the dialogue bits uh, that are really good. Uh, well, moments like when when Peter and Alicia are up at atop the tower. That's a really nice moment. That one's mm-hmm. really well sculpted. There's some poetry, you know, poetic sort of language. There's some of the sensory things, and there's this big, big epic scope. Uh, like that's that that that's a nice moment. A nice moment to be there. I think I think I'm, I'm feeling that in contrast to like when the, he talks about their their rides and their like uh, it's just 
a lot of time being covered really quickly uh, a lot of times in a row. So I don't know. It, it's a particular style of writing that feels very, it feels, I guess we could say it's, it feels very, very plot driven mm. as a uh, plot, plot, I would say plot first, character second, world third, or smithing fourth. So it's kind of mm. how I'm experiencing the story. So, which again, I mean, it's not bad at all. It just, other stories emphasize different elements in different ways. Yeah. I think I would go character first, world build, building second, then plot, actually. That's how I see it, actually. But we can, yeah, that's why we both read this. <laughs> that's the good thing. Yeah. It, it's just, I, I really appreciate the the way that he's diving into each character. I feel like I know Peter now. I feel like I know Alicia pretty well. Sarah actually, surprisingly, I feel like they did. A, he did a really good job painting who she is. Even, mm. even the simple fact of, you know, being able to um, get that that uh, rabbit and then do the stew and then take it to Elton. Like, I don't know. I just feel like these these moments are are so nicely written about each person that mm-hmm. I, I I feel like I know them. And maybe that's also partly uh, because I can kind of I don't know, fill in the gaps, or I, I feel like if there's nothing, if there's something that's not said, I can assume, oh, this might be the case here. You know, kind of building the persona in my mind. But for the most part, he does paint a pretty good picture of each person, at least so mm-hmm. far. Yeah. Yes. I mean, the, these are very interesting characters, and they there there's a depth to them, and especially once you get them all together and the way that they have history and drama with each other. All of that definitely is very interesting. Yeah, even from Peter's perspective, you know, with Theo, uh, his brother, we, we actually learn a lot about Theo from Peter. And not even exposition, mm. more like editorial comments. Like, you know, he his look was different or he seemed different. He Peter reasoned, you know, to himself pretty mm-hmm. much. And, and then that leaves us kind of speculating like, well, what was Theo going through? Was he really upset with Mao's or why is he seeming so hopeless here and, you know, just on the verge of nihilism, you know, when everything's pointless, we're all just going to die unless we keep the lights mm. on. So let's just do it. You know, that, yeah. that sort of stuff. It's really key. I yeah. Think. yeah, definitely. Speaking of that, shall we uh, talk some themes and Please. stuff? Yes. Okay. So like what you mentioned, so the, we're all going to die factor. So like we said, they're afraid the lights are going to go out, which would essentially mean they're, they're all going to die. So, and this is following so I guess we're we're talking about what happens when the end of the world comes. Mm-hmm. In a sense, that already happened. And so they're about to have that happen again. Because we could say, yes. Which, I guess, for sure, for sure in the United States, the North America, North, North American continent, they don't have any idea what's going on in the rest of the world. Although, mm-hmm. we could guess. Anyway, but all that to say, uh, a whole continent's empire has fallen. Almost everybody's dead. And now they're looking at so that's like an end of the world right there. And then uh, there's this been this remnant of colonists in this little, little colony. And now they're looking at, well, maybe we're all going to be wiped out too. So then what does one do in these situations? <laughs> yeah. What is, uh, you know, we, we kind of raised the question, what about humanity is crucial to preserve? Mm. Well, I think even though we as a culture very much idolize sports and celebrities and influencers and whatnot. Um, I don't like those things, but I really think art, art in its, in its purest forms uh, is what we need to, is what we should need to uh, preserve in some, in some way or another. I'm not saying like, Hey, make sure you get to the Louvre and, get the Mona Lisa. I'm saying like, you know, books, literature is so, so key. And then grab a few, you know, grab a few paintings and see, and, and, or recordings, you know, if we can have any way that we can get some recordings of something, um, whether it be speeches or, or what have you, but yeah, history books for sure, art, you know, recordings. So we know what things were, were like, or they were generally like, and Honestly, like, well, foundationally, I think the Bible. So, I mean, that's not spoken of 
in this at all because a lot of times these things are pretty secular. Mm. <laughs> Even though he does mention God in a couple different ways. Yeah, that, that brings up an interesting memory though. So in this older movie, like The Day After Tomorrow, that's another like mm-hmm. the world ends because of like the the ice age and everything. But there's this one moment where this one librarian is... They're, they're stuck in like the the library in New York, I think, and it's freezing and they're, they're burning books to they're they're burning books to stay alive. And but this one librarian's like, no, you cannot burn this Gutenberg Bible. And the the one girl at, in that scene is like, what do you think God's going to save you? And he's like, I don't believe in God. I'm an atheist. But he's able to point to how the the Bible, like the Gutenberg edition, represented a huge bit of what culture had been built upon and oh, how. Yeah even though he rejected all of its content, recognized its significance. And so for that reason, it was saying, this is the piece of society I'm going to preserve. So there's that definitely. Yeah. It's interesting. So, so talking about what do we preserve about humanity, you, you invoking like the, the arts or the works that people have done. Uh, it was interesting. I was talking, it was actually just this afternoon talking with my middle of the son about uh, having an impact. And he had asked, uh, he'd ask like, what is, what does August mean? And we started talking about Caesar Augustus and, and everything and the Roman empire. And, and so we had this really lovely conversation. I thought about what it means to have an impact and talking about someone like, like Caesar Augustus, who had a very big public impact, you know, complex that it was, whatever. I mean, the Roman empire complex or was, was really influential compared to say, like, like, like the Mayans, uh, just like on a global scale. But then we're we're talking about how, like within or within our own tradition. I mean, we'll look to you know for us for for our saints, uh, you know Saint Anthony the Great, uh, Saint John Chrysostom, uh, Saint John Maximovich. Um, well, he's he's a more recent one, but you know, uh, like you know Saint Luke the Evangelist. You know, were hugely influential within within the Orthodox Christian Church, uh, for for their life, their life of virtue, their works of holiness, and we're talking about how that's that. I mean, that that's the way to have impact. Again, that can be kind of public and kind of long lasting. But then we're also talking about how there's other people who have a less seen but still very real impact. And it was referring to uh, my grandfather, my Lolo. Uh, he was the one who immigrated from the Philippines with his wife and six kids and restarted life, you know, in Southern California. And, you know, many generations of Pesimios then have been the recipients or certainly impacted by that. And so, so I don't know, we, we were, it was this interesting, and I'm, I'm tangent, tangenting a little bit, but the thought about like, what is crucial about humanity to preserve is making me think about like, well, what is, what is, what are the impactful things or how does one have an impact or how does one do something that would be worth preserving, whether through preserving art or in memory or in story. And, and I guess, I don't know, I guess it would depend on, Oh, what are we thinking? I guess it might depend on if you have like a really materialist only worldview or if there's more of a more room for the like the the spiritual world. Because if like the material world is all that matters, then yeah, you'd want to like carve a statue or write a document or enact a policy or create a a something or butcher a bunch of people <laughs> like make everybody scared or something to be to be remembered in, in just a strictly material sense um but then you factor in like like the spiritual world like what's what's crucial to preserve you know preserving love preserving connection preserving trust preserving preserving the prayers and preserving uh, like, like we said foundational for us preserving the christian tradition and and there could be a lot of ways that i like, like maybe me personally, uh, maybe I never become famous and nobody ever listens to the podcast and like, I never, I never make any like historical record, but if I can still invest in my kids so that they know that they're loved and then they know how to talk about their feelings and they then know how to love their wives and kids someday, there's, there's something being preserved there, even though it's like a very ordinary kind of invisible thing. Yeah, no, I, th- I like that. And I think, you know, what we instill in our kids, what we pass on those should go on and, and continue as parts of us being, you know, bequeathed, if you will, or bestowed upon our the next generations. And I think that's part of our legacy because, it's, I mean, honestly, it shouldn't be about our legacy. It should be about a shared legacy that continues on and on and on. And I think, you know, if even, even if you bring it back to the book, 
you know, a lot of these people, they have the, I don't know, survivor mentality or the tenacity, right, of the of the first one, of, of Auntie. And <clears throat> that's something that she she passed down to, you know, the first household and, the, you know, the whole thing, the one, the one law. Mm-hmm. But I, I think it's really good for you to have those conversations with August. I can't wait till I can have those combos with Isaiah. It's going to be awesome. But that that really highlights another important aspect of what I think needs to be preserved if any type of people group want to retain an element of the previous generations. And that is to somehow, some way, get as much history or knowledge of history in your midst. I mean, because we, we, we need to learn from history. You know, not just learn about, we need to learn from history. And people who have gone before us, you know, they, you know we, we need to be you know, cognizant of where we are as a society and who we are as a people group. And, you know, not, not just be on in this isolated bubble of uh, self-knowledge or self-attainment. It's, it's got to be, you know, sharing people's ideas and philosophies mm-hmm. and pragmatism and all sorts of, you know, inventions and engineering feats and everything. We, we, need, we need to borrow from the, those who have gone before us, who have paved the way for us to be where we are right now. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, even and learn from the terrible things too. learn from, you know, 1935 to 1945. And that's Germany. And like learn from, you know, atrocities in the Soviet Union. I mean, you learn from that crap, too. Even I mean, even parts of the obviously the Roman Empire and just the terrible things that that they did to people to mm-hmm. conquer places. And I, I just I really think that that's a, an important piece of it, too. Not so not only art um, in of itself, but art with a purpose and a ton of historical content. Yeah. I, I mean, I would think, yeah, art, the art, art, art communicates stuff beyond the intellect. Um, mm-hmm. Like it communicates like, like the emotion and the, the intuitive and uh, kind of like, like the spirit of people in a way that like a book um, wouldn't on its own. The other thing I'm thinking is so, so two things. So, so the so families and that that's depicted in the, in this story is that, not not necessarily with any significant planning, but like there's this instinctive value of we we make families, we perpetuate families, we operate as families and in a society, and that that element of humanity is preserved as opposed to we're just like all ravaging vigilantes out for our own self. But the other thing would be ritual. And there's a little bit of that in the story, like like the ritual of you know standing the watch. But a major part of what binds a society together is shared ritual shared practices shared um that are uh, about shared belief oftentimes but you know a, a shared ritual means having this the shared point of focus the shared object of object of attention and being able to participate as a community in a, in, a, in a shared ritual has this very very binding effect and i think it's part of i mean you see that a little bit in like like the 12-step culture that can get a little bit fanatical sometimes um but that part of what when that works for people, um, I think a major part of it is they're stepping into an established communal ritual. And it's, you know, you see that again in, in, in the Orthodox Christian tradition too. It's, there's a lot of established practices and we, we don't just like show up for our own individual, like emotional, spiritual experience. Like we show up to, as a community, participate in these shared rituals, shared practices together. And then and there's something like hugely connective about that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, family's family is huge. So when you, when you think about how how do not only get through something like that, what you, you said, how do you do that? You know, how do you survive this crazy thing? But also, how do you set up the next thing, the next community, this this colony, this first colony? How do you begin, begin to even see that through? How do you how do you set up the one law? Right, like what does that even look like to mm-hmm. begin with? Yeah. And then again, going going to with a strictly materialist perspective, I mean, it's this. I guess you go in an evolutionary utilitarian survival of the fittest. Like we got to survive. What do we need to do to survive? And and here we could uh, consider there needs to be an order to the society if that's going to work. And so having a law or legal code is essential for that. And what we'd watch for is somewhere in the balance between chaos and tyranny, because having something like the one law 
it would be necessary in a chaotic time as a pushback against the chaos. But then the risk would be to see, well, does that order then turn into tyranny? And then it's too much order. And then usually there'd be some sort of chaotic rebuttal for that, some uprising at some point anyway. Yeah, exactly. You know, it also makes me think about two things. One, I noticed that um, in, a, in an existence like this, obviously there are trades, right? Power station, turbines, raising fields, etc. There's the sanctuary, there's the watch, uh, there are walkers, all this stuff. But you notice there's very little talk of hobbies, very little talk of heart passions, right? Things that you generally enjoy. And that, that's a result of this survivalist type of existence, absolutely. But think about how life-giving it is to spend, you know, 10, 15 minutes, whatever, doing something you actually just truly enjoy. You know, and I'm sure they've made up some games and whatnot to, to have some uh, stuff during the day. But it's, you know, <laughs> the, we, live, we live in such luxury here you know, with, without this looming threat of virals <laughs> coming, cascading down upon us to, to suck our, our bodies, drive us blood. And so, right. you know, think about how, how much time we have and how, how many, how many um, areas of our lives are actually impacted uh, or, or maybe better by the hobbies, the things that we do that we enjoy. Um, yeah. And then we take it steps further and it can get really out of hand, you know I mean? addiction to social media is off the charts but you know what i mean right yeah well here's where uh factoring in like the intergenerational epigenetic inheritance becomes a thing um so uh so you know classically we look at you know people who went through like in america like the great depression or people who went through in any fashion like the holocaust and their their bodies their emotions their minds their souls were like irrevocably impacted by those sorts of events and also, the way that they lived was the practices they did, the choices they made were very, very affected by that. And then so were their kids and their grandkids, because big events like this that impact the world, that impact a culture, they, they, they don't just happen around us. They impact our bodies. We, we carry in our bodies the memory of these traumas that happen. And the body that, keeps the score. The body keeps yeah. the score, very literally. Uh, and our bodies are changed at the at the genetic code level technically not the genetic code but like the the epigenetic markers of the of our, of our genes get get changed in response to the environment and that is what is transmitted so uh so in, in you know in what's depicted in this story like you're saying here you know the world ended we're surviving we're surviving so we're surviving we don't have time to play play is fluff we don't have it mm -hmm. that's I would, you know, we could maybe say appropriate for survival mentality, um, but it is the other dynamic is that is, let's say they survive this, that's going to have an impact on their culture, their mindset, uh, how these people are, their general assumptions, beliefs, worldviews are all going to be impacted by this century where we didn't play because we exactly. had to survive. Uh, and so whether you have people who fundamentally don't play or so people who in rebuttal like only play. Uh, you know, they're, they are, they're all in a sense responding to this burden, uh, like we don't play cause we have to survive. So again, knowing your history, you know, recognizing, so you have your instinctive beliefs and assumptions and presuppositions and a, uh, it's very good if you can recognize them as they're happening and also recognize, Hey, they, they don't exist for no reason. They, they've been formed by something. Uh, oh, and by the way, that's happening for everyone around you. People aren't just awful. They have history feeding into them. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's interesting too, going into uh, the section about the sanctuary, because talk about not playing, man, all these, everybody who who's born in the colony has no idea what the day-to-day -day real true life is until they're eight years old. Once they turn eight, then the teacher sits them down in this static empty room with just the two of them and explains, hey, Everything's really, really different than you were led to believe the last seven and that, you know, seven plus years. And, and they just sit them down and all of a sudden it's like this jarring experience where now they have to experience all these things fresh and new and, and like they've never seen right. anything oh, and before. 
also santa claus doesn't exist either so (laughs) (laughs) it's like by the way no but i mean that that i don't know see i think that would be something that i would kind of push against if i were to create a colony is i don't know if i would fully like shelter all the kids for eight whole years with zero exposure to any of the the realities that they're about to about to face once they hit that eight eight year Mm -hmm. mark. Like I I think, I don't know. I I just feel like that can lead to a lot of unhealthy things. And the, the shock of that moment, that alone can, I mean, uh, you know, um, what's his name? What's her name? Uh, Sarah. She remembered that moment. And she, yeah, Sarah, Sarah Fisher, she, she remembered that moment. Mm -hmm. Like, like it was yesterday. She could recall everything about it because it was Mm -hmm. such a shock, such a traumatic moment. And like yeah. for me, I would I would want to introduce some of the kids earlier in life, maybe not when they were three or four, but you know, just starting to slowly, kind of. Yeah. Well, there's something there's something about this that's reminding me of. I mean, I'm kind of joking about like the Santa Claus thing, but I mean, for a lot of people, that's been a really major moment when they realize, oh wait, like my parents lied to me, or this thing that I believed in isn't true, or, well, I. Yeah, basically this idea of like, I, I was lied to and this thing that I was holding mm-hmm. on to and that I, I built like this internal hope structure around isn't true. And I have to readjust to that. That's, I think, really devastating for people. And so like, I would highly mm-hmm. recommend against, you know, you know, pretending that Santa Claus is real. But it's also reminded me of like what happens for like, like the deconstructionists a, a little bit. And I mean, there's a lot more that filters into like the deconstruction experience, but like, I know for me, when I was like kind of working through like my deconstruction phase, like a lot of it was a sense of like, I grew up in this one very kind of cloistered evangelical tradition that said like, like the world that like the church in particular is a particular way. The Bible is a particular way. And then, and I didn't even go very far. I just went to Bible college and inter- interacted with like other denominations and discovered like, oh, you mean there's more than what my church said there was? Like, you mean the world's bigger than like pastor so-and-so? said it was it's bigger than my parents said what 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 and it was really disorienting and i was just at bible college like i can't imagine if i had like gone straight from like homeschool youth group to super secular university yeah but but it's this idea of uh there are these moments where we come out of being really sheltered into oh wow the world's a lot bigger more complicated darker than i thought it was wow what do i do what what i think though could be an interesting counterpoint to all of this would be to say, yes, shelter kids some because they need a childhood. Um, I mean, they need to be able to experience innocence a little bit, but it wouldn't, but, uh, and again, kind of referencing the timetable in the story, uh, you know, maybe not wait until they're eight year old to start telling them about how the world is. You know, you could start introducing little bits further than that. What I really think would make the difference, though, is like the relationships around them. Like if I am already like emotionally disconnected, emotionally stunted, I am unsure if my parents really love me. I'm not I'm not sure that I'm worthy of attention or worthy of love. Like I I haven't been attuned to, I haven't really been nurtured. And so I'm just like already feeling isolated and insecure and, and anxious. And then I discover I've been lied to or the world isn't what I thought it was yeah, that's going to be devastating and that's going to be really traumatic. But if I have had caregivers who have attuned to me, who have made space for my curiosity, who have been present with me, who have been consistently trustworthily present and and held me and held my feelings with them, that creates a sense of safety and security. And I my, my guess is if I have that as my foundation, then I could be introduced to a devastating dump of data that says everything is different than I thought it was because everything wouldn't be different because there would be the sense of like, but dad and mom still love me or, you know, by Mm. extension, but, but God still loves me because I have this experience of attachment and in the attachment is the security. And I think, I feel like, uh, again, watching, you know, a lot of my, you know, deconstructing friends go through what they're going through. I feel like, I wonder how much their family relationships factor into this and for mm-hmm. the people who go through deconstruction and opt to stay kind of close to to uh, what they were believing before i i wonder if some of that might have to do with like they just had better foundational relationships 
Yeah. That, that, well, that and part well. of the foundational relationships is the freedom and the safe, uh, the safety to ask questions and to feel like you're not going to be, you know, just, just reamed because of it. And, 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 you know, just cast aside or judged or anything like that, like actually having questions. And I think that we, we need to allow that to happen. We need to, we need to allow questions to happen, not just shut it down when they get brought up, you know? And I actually think that's part of the thing that would help a society grow more holistically, if you will, is if you allow these questions to, to, to come up within the context of healthy relationships, that these can be good, healthy conversations as you go along. And rather than you know, for instance, talk about sex real quick, you know, not introducing sex to a, you know, a fifth grader by videotape in the room full of other fifth graders in a dark auditorium, like talk about it at home, like explain things prior and you don't need to go into detail, just kind of, it needs to be a a reality in a person's life. And we are smart enough as a species to pick up on certain things as we're going along rather than all of a sudden, boom, Hey, guess what? This is how you got here without, uh, you know, without actually having that. It's not just like one talk either, you know, Oh, go, you're going to have the talk, aren't you? It's, I feel like there's so much that's missing in terms of our introduction to new ideas and big ideas. It's like we can develop these things as we go along. And I'm not, I'm not being extreme here. I'm not saying, Hey, tell a two-year-old how, how the world works. I'm saying there are certain pieces as parts of truth that can kind of become some sort of bread trail to the ultimate, you know, full reveal or ex- exposure at a, at a proper age. But so. it won't be as much of a sh- uh, culture shock when it happens. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean, to that topic specifically. So, so with, with my, with my oldest, um, so, so he watched, uh, he watched two, his mom go through, you know, both, Two more, two more pregnancies. Uh, wasn't present at the births, but you know, got to talk through a lot of like the process and a lot of the anatomy and a lot of like how a baby grows and like kind of like ask everything, but like how does like the daddy cell get into the mommy uh, and that sort of thing. And it wasn't until <laughs> uh, and when we we we've been talking, uh, my my wife and I talking a lot about like, well, when do we have the talking? Because I very much said like, I want us to start that conversation and not. Mm-hmm pornography and not like his peers and and not anywhere else so freaking lootly man right and so and her idea was to wait until like he was kind of curious about it on his own and so kind of the 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 way the moment developed was there's this uh there's this uh, sea shanty you know drunken sailor and this verse about like you know put him in the bed with the captain's daughter and we were asking him like not to sing that one and he was like well why not and i was like um because it's a sexual innuendo. So, and so from there, we got to have a conversation about, you know, coming from within Christian worldview, here's, you know, people in the in the image of God and co-creators with Christ and like making babies and like a whole bunch of things. But we got to use really clear, really direct, really non-shaming, non-pathologizing language around it and just be like, oh, here's how it is and blah, 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 really direct. And, you know, I mean, long term, we'll see how the how this is how this goes. But in, in the short term, and he's felt very, I'm perceiving he's feeling very comfortable because he's come to me like maybe like a dozen times since then, and be like, I have another question about you know what, uh, and because yeah. he's like because he's like trying not to like say the word around his younger brothers because we asked him not to, but mm-hmm. but he's had a lot of questions and he's been able to bring those up, and and I'm really encouraged about that, and we've gotten to have like a lot more just like really open conversations about it. That's awesome. See, he's protecting that information as he's processing it too. You know, it's not just like this, you know, free for all. It sounds like he's actually um, using wisdom to deal with this this new knowledge, this information that he's been given by his his loving parents. You know, I think that's yeah. that's awesome. I, I think so. I hope so. Uh, I mean, I guess we'll see in a few years when he goes through puberty and what happens. But uh, I mean, I know there, there, there's a part of me in like. Like this was a conversation like I would have wanted and didn't know that I needed that. Or, or I mean, I didn't know what I was missing when I, when I was a kid. And now I'm like, oh, and especially as I work with a lot of other other, other guys as they're in recovery from like sex addiction, porn addiction, a whole bunch of things. And they're like, yeah, nobody taught me or my first exposure to 
sex was like this super violent pornography or whatever. I'm like, oh, there's a better way. There's a better way. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's so destructive. Rough segue <laughs> because there's this other, <laughs> other, maybe one other theme I want to explore a little bit. Please. So, so back in the passage, back in the year 92 AV, which I'm guessing means like after viral, after virus or something. There's this question, what is a human? What makes a human? Uh, the the humans, the colonists, their perception of the, the virals, the smokes, the jumps, the vampire people is that they're soulless and thus no longer human. And there's some things that they observe that support that. Meanwhile, here's Peter. He's observing, but they always go in threes. So are they Trinitarian? <laughs> or they always come back home. Uh, what's with that? Uh, and then, the, then then, when he gets up close to Xander, again, there, there's a sense that this guy, he's definitely been turned. He's, but he, but the, the twist in, in that little story was um, this character Xander, he, he, had, he had opportunity to kill the Caleb kid and didn't and actually mm-hmm. tried to protect him a little bit. And and there's almost a sense of like Xander kind of working with the humans to like let them kill him so he doesn't like hurt anybody else. And so I don't know. It just seemed like the story is presenting some uh, presenting this question of like what makes a human. Uh, to and then there's this further variable when you get into uh, Amy's section and she's reflecting on on her relationship with the virals. Like she can hear them in her head and. And interesting plot detail. So, so the original twelve that were in the compound, I guess they are like distinct within like the rest of them, and uh, not necess- I don't know, maybe like not necessarily like leaders or something, but they're they're I don't they're, they're, there's something special about like the first twelve, uh, and she so has like a particular hands. yeah, or she has a particular connection with them in a way. Mm-hmm. But there's there's also the sense that, and again, she being her she can communicate with them in a way or she has some i don't know there there's a relationship there of some sort and so i don't know it just uh yeah it brings up this question of what makes a person a person or what well, is a person and to, to add to your description there too when she's talking about them she talks about how a group of them took out that uh that group of men on horseback probably talking about Peter and Theo's dad and, and the and the group that he was with, right? And one of the guys that died that day was Willem. And she, she says, uh, fear and pain and the letting go, it came to her that the man's name had been Willem. And the ones who had done it to Willem were sorry, so sorry. And she rose and said to them, it's all right, go now, and do not do this again if you can help it. Though she knew that they could not. They could not help it because of the twelve who filled their minds with terrible dreams of blood and no answer to the question, but this. And then it says, I am Babcock. I am Morrison. I am Chavez. So named the, the 12 there. So that's, that's really interesting to me too. Uh, it seems maybe not controlling them directly, but the dreams are really important and they're, and they're terrible dreams. It's almost like they, they don't have control over their bloodlust, but they are somewhere in there. You know, it, so it does beg your question: mm-hmm. what What makes a human human and a viral viral in this in this mm-hmm. world? Yeah. So we could say: so what makes a human human is the image of God. Humans, as they're made, we yeah we we image we image God, and in the way that the the Orthodox understand that is the, that image is always there, and 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 is good, but the likeness of that image can get tarnished, and we use the illustration of a mirror. You know, a mirror is always a mirror and is always going to reflect, but it can get kicked with mud and tarnish and a whole bunch of things to where it no longer reflects the the image of its maker. And people can be like that too. There's there's things we can do to clarify the image and bring out the image and venerate the image in others. And there's also things we can do to completely cloud it or and you know to to invoke some internal family systems language. You know, they're they're a term for the same. The, the way that they try to talk about the same thing is they talk about like the self, the true self, uh, the self energies, um, and they talk about it as this core energy that's like invincible and uncreated, created and fully developed at birth. And some of the protective parts, some of the very very burdened protective parts, will sometimes like push push the self like all the way out of the person, and just like not let that per- not let that self in. I think in in Orthodox speak, we would look at that as like the opposite of theosis, which is more like demonization. 
where you're and again not to say like you are like a demon but it's like that's kind of i don't know we we kind of talk about that as the, the two counterparts you're either growing in conformity to the image of christ and becoming you know beautiful in that way or you're in the opposite trajectory because there's no there's no neutral and middle ground uh so here here's here's these these vampires who yeah you kind of get the sense like you're talking about there there's some of their original humanity still in them changed as their bodies are um but there's these other forces the these particular 12 imbued with you know the spirit of richards you know the guy who shot everybody uh, <laughs> and the these 12 are a force against humanity because they're they're forcing they're exiling the the, whatever shred of humanity is left in these virals it's being exiled by these 12 maybe that's what makes the human a human is like full access increasingly full access to the image of god or in ifs speak you know more and more access to, to self no that's good that's good i feel like um you know a lot of really good things there it's almost like the virals are being imprisoned behind this irreversible condition that was given to them or thrust upon them when they were turned by someone who had been turned before or originally from one of the 12. So the imprisonment, it's like a condition that they can't help. It, it, it kind of reminds me of um, those who are imprisoned in, in, this, in, the, in the sinful nature you know, unable to do anything on their own accord. And that's, and that's where, you know, that's where redemption comes in. That's where being given new life um, so that that condition can be taken care of uh, in and by the, the blood and resurrection life of Jesus. So that's kind of where my mind goes there. If I'm equating the situation passage to a theological concept. Right. Which we should probably be careful about pulling theology out of uh, <laughs> pop culture novels. Uh, <laughs> no, I know, um, but yeah, but uh, you know, it's, seeing seeing the, the reference there, yeah, it raises a question. <laughs> but uh, it went, you know, what does it? It really stood out when it turned, uh, or when it appeared that Caleb was running from them, and that three of them were almost almost like they could have taken him at any time. Yet they were letting him go back to the station. So obviously, not only souls are at play here, but but intellect and strategy, and you know these these virals. Because even a couple of times, Peter was like, "When have they done that?" You know. Mm-hmm. And so there's this question of, well, man, they're getting smarter. They they're like kind of strategizing and doing all these things. So now we have yeah. to ask, well, are they evolving? Are they evolving? Yeah. So yes, are they more like the dinosaurs of Jurassic Park finding a way to be alive, or are they more like the Borg and adapting? Uh, either way is uh, disturbing <laughs> for for the people. But yeah, no, it's it's it's, it's uh, yes, it's an interesting plot development to see that these uh, immortal bloodsuckers are evolving in a way. So yes, good stakes, very good stakes. Hmm. Yes, it's a very good, very good section. Yes, indeed. I'm excited for the next one. Here's where I say we call it for this time. It's been fun. Next time, join us on sections five and six. That's the next one we're going to do is chapters 24 through 41. Yes, it's a longer section, but um, it'll be good. Read through chapter 41. Yep. And... Go be present with your kids if you have kids and let them talk about the feeling some and eat your vegetables. <laughs> yes. Because words of wisdom for, for the kids to be a good example. Of course. Yeah. Them kids, they need good examples of eating yeah. vegetables. And maybe throw in a rabbit every now and then too. Right. Yeah. We have a pet rabbit now, which it's, oh. it's been fun. She runs around, she runs around the yard. It, it's kind of adorable. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, this was fun, man. This is a good chat. Yeah. Thank you very much. And thank you all listeners for being here. Be sure and rate and review the show and visit us on patreon.com slash Moses Bernabe. And share this stuff, man. Share the shiz out of this one. Yeah. Because it'll be cool. We'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. 
Many is a podcast by Moses Bernabe. If you like what you hear, consider supporting the show with dollars, reviews, or shares, or all of the above. Word and Journey can be found on most major podcast platforms and on my author Patreon at patreon.com slash Moses Bernabe. Moses Bernabe can be found at MosesBernabe.com. Contact info for my most excellent co-hosts can be found in the liner notes. The podcast logo was designed by TJ Todd with additional development by Moses Bernabe. The theme music is by Aaron Esparza. This episode was mastered by Breakfast Puppies. Thanks for listening and see you next time.